Welcome to another exciting edition of Open Swim. You're here with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelshots. Eric Kogelshots. Brian Andrew Jasinski. And Allie Healy. It is Allie's very first appearance on the podcast. <laughs> Allie is the newest addition to the Sharkamino team. She is our brand spank new marketing coordinator. Allie, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I just graduated from college from Heidelberg University. Um, so this is a good podcast for me, I guess, uh, education. I was interning here over the summer as a marketing intern, and then I graduated again to coordinate. Not only are we happy to have her here at the firm, but we're happy to have her on the podcast. When some loud bragger tries to put me down and says this school is great, I tell him right away, now what's the matter, buddy? Ain't you heard of my school? It's number one in the state. So today we are actually, as Ali um, mentioned, we are going to be talking about education. It's something very near and dear to our hearts. Over the years, the Shark and Minnow team has had the opportunity to work on a variety of education-based projects. It's something that we care deeply about as people um, and professionally. And so as we started to think about topics for the podcast... We have spent a lot of time researching, thinking about the right way to approach this, and hopefully this will be the first conversation in a series of many about the future of education. And we're very fortunate today to have on the podcast Mandy Manning, who this year was awarded the 2018 Teacher of the Year by the Council of Chief State School Officers um, and was recognized at the White House recently. You may or may not have seen her. Uh, she did make some headlines, which we'll talk about a little later. And she also happens to be the head of the Newcomer Center at the Joel E. Ferris High School in Spokane, Washington. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for being with us today. We're really excited that you made the time and are just delighted that you're here with us on the program. Let's start here because some of our audience members might not be familiar with who you are and what you do. Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and on your work? I'm the 2018 National Teacher of the Year, and I currently teach in the Newcomer Center. I've been teaching in the Newcomer Center for the past seven years. This would be my eighth year. And the Newcomer Center is, a, is housed within a comprehensive high school here in Spokane, Washington, Ferris High School, and it serves brand new immigrant and refugee students to our nation. So these are students who are newly arrived, usually within the last three months, and they speak very little English. Let me just ask you a general question. How did you end up in education in the first place? Well, actually, I didn't start out to be a teacher. I started out to be a filmmaker, and my undergraduate degree is in filmmaking. But shortly after graduating, I realized that, and I had worked for a TV news station and done some other things, and I realized that my personality wasn't well-suited to that industry. And so I just really didn't know what to do. And I had a friend who was a paraeducator, which is an instructional assistant in a special education classroom. And they happened to have an opening. And so he approached me about it and said he thought that I would enjoy it. And so I applied and I became a paraeducator in a designed instruction classroom. So these are students who have developmental and learning, severe learning disabilities. And so I did that for a year and I really enjoyed it. And I saw the impact an amazing educator can have, like the lead teacher in my classroom, can have on this very special population. 
And after that, I joined the Peace Corps and tried my hand at being a lead teacher in a classroom in Armenia. And I did that for two years, and it was an amazing experience because it really challenged my perceptions about the world and about human beings and made me more open to different ways of thinking, being, and doing. And when I came back to the United States, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I went to Texas to be with my aunt um, and work with her a little bit. And she encouraged me to be an educator. And I didn't think I could because, you know, I had an undergraduate degree in filmmaking. (laughs) But I applied for a job in a very small town. And I got a job as a lead teacher in a theater and communications classroom. Um, And that really was the beginning for me. And the first day when I walked into that classroom and I saw all of those young people and the, you know, nervousness and excitement on their faces and the endless potential, I was, I was pretty much hooked. And so I've been teaching ever since. And this is my 20th year in education. As also a, another film school grad myself, what I can say is that, you know, certainly from your trajectory in mind, I think what a great foundation for, go, you know, for those that go through that program is that you love to storytell and you really love to understand what makes people tick and how to connect with them and build relationships. And that's really evident in the work that you do. Um, and so I totally can see how that foundation um, kind of plays into the important work that you're doing now and, 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 and why you care so deeply about telling the stories of your students. Um, and, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about your personal mission as a teacher and educator, because storytelling seems to be a big part of it. But, you know, I, I wonder, like, what, what gets you up in the morning? What makes you excited about the work that you do in the classroom? And, and what's the end result that you hope it leads to? What gets me up and into the classroom every morning is the hope that the students represent, right? I mean, these young people with their endless potential are, are our future. And that's really cool to watch. It's really cool to watch and, and to be part of that whole process of, figuring out who you are and what you're going to contribute to our nation and our communities. And so that's really what my end goal is, too, is to instill in my students a belief in themselves and the confidence that they, no matter where they've come from or who they are or, you know, what they look like or the experiences they've had in life so far, they have this potential and ability to be whatever it is they dream they want to be. That's my hope every single year is that once the semester ends with the kids or the or the year ends with the kids that they leave my classroom confident that they can be and do anything that they put their minds to regardless of what they've experienced in life so far. What are some of the things that have surprised you most about working with those that are new to this country? And, you know, you've talked about hope. What are the things that you've learned that do give you hope based on what you've learned? It's not really surprising, but it's just profound. One of the most profound things about working with newcomers, with brand new immigrant refugee students, is the innate hope that they have and the focus and ability to persevere. Because these students have gone through traumas that most of us wouldn't really be able to understand or picture or visualize even. And they've gone through these experiences and come out alive and safe on the other side. And so that instills within them this belief that life can be joyful and can be everything that they dream it can be because they have this new opportunity that for most of them, and and by new opportunity, I mean that they have been able to come to the United States 
and have this potential to go to school and achieve dreams that for many of them, when they were refugees in refugee camp, that they didn't believe that was possible. And so now here they are. And that resilience, and some people will call it grit, they have that more than any other students I've ever encountered. And it's precisely because they've had to fight so hard to get where they are right now. And so they're dedicated and focused and excited to be here and want nothing more than to give back to the community that welcomed them in. Every single day is a gift to me because I have the opportunity to be with these amazing people, these amazing human beings who I know are going to add so much beauty and focus and dedication to our communities. That's really the most profound part of of what I do right now. There's a definite bridge between what you're doing in the community and what all of us as citizens hopefully will get to experience in our society when your student's time in the classroom ends. So one thing I know we were curious about, what can the general American public learn from some of the things that you do in the classroom? You know, what are some of the approaches, for example, that you embody in the classroom that you feel that more citizens can employ when engaging with new Americans? Simply being welcoming and being excited that there are new and interesting people in our community. And just to be interested in who they are and what they're bringing with them, the assets and the strengths, and seeking to make connections. That's really what I do in my classroom. Yes, we teach the foundational elements of language that they need in order to move on to higher level classes in, my, in our school system. But for the most part, our job is to ease their transition into studying and living in the United States and to ensure that they feel that they are welcome and that they belong here and that we are so very happy and excited that they are joining us in our community. And it it really, truly, it's that simple. The more welcome that our newcomers feel and the more that they feel they belong and are wanted, the more likely they are to be successful and be able to give back to our communities. One of the things that you talked about making connections and watched your National Teacher of the Year video. And one of the things that really struck us was your encouragement of people to, quote, get uncomfortable. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means and why it matters to our nation's future. One of the things that um, has happened in our society is that we've really cut ourselves off from even our, you know, direct neighbors next door. We stay, we no longer have front porches. If you look at how we, you know, build things now, there's a back deck, but there's really not a front porch. And that would used to be a cornerstone of neighborhoods, right? There would be a front porch and everybody would hang out on their front porch and you'd wave at people as they walked by and engage in um, community conversation with your neighbors. But now we don't have the front porches. We build fences like that you cannot see through and that are high enough to where no one can look over. And so we're blocking ourselves off. And even in our online interactions, you know, we're, we're operating within communities that essentially agree with whatever our original idea was in the first place. And so we need to, as a society, seek experiences that will challenge us and challenge our perceptions and give us experiences that are different from anything we've ever experienced in the past. And that can include something as simple as going outside of your house and knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, hey, I'm Mandy Manning and um, I'm your neighbor. 
and I just wanted to meet you. Because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be challenged. We don't like to reflect on our own personal perceptions and biases. We just like to stay within that, within what is most, for lack of a better word, comfortable, right? And so we need to step out and seek experiences that challenge us so that we can be open to beauty and what's interesting about everyone else. Because how do we grow as a society and be the strongest that we can be if we're only doing things in one way? We have to have a a variety of, of ways of being, thinking and doing in order to come to the best conclusions and build the best you know, infrastructure and, and do all of these things. So you have to, we have to step out. I mean, that's what I did in the Peace Corps. When I went to the Peace Corps, I completely challenged myself to be in an environment that was wholly unlike living in the United States. Um, and, and it did, it served me well because it opened my worldview and it helped me be value people and see their assets. That's what we all need to be doing. We shouldn't be closing ourselves off. We should be opening ourselves up. We work with a client here based in Cleveland, Ohio, called Global Cleveland. And one of the things that they did to encourage people to really have those experiences where they get uncomfortable was they tried to give like kind of a checklist and an action plan, you know, which included things like, you know, if you're going out to dinner with your family, it could be as simple as choosing a restaurant that's founded by somebody who's new to the country and trying a a type of food that you've never had before. And it's amazing, you know, how intimidating that can be to a lot of people. You know, even these simple things you say, like, you know, going next door, knocking on the door making a connection. We talk about this a lot because we're a firm that deals a lot in technology, but some of it has to do with societal trends around technology and how relationships happen in the digital age. But some of it is just getting over truly your fear of having a new experience and connecting with another human being. And it's so important. We totally agree with you. I also think it's interesting that you brought up this idea of the the human experience through the physical, the analog, you know, just how the the portraits were set up and how that's changed over time and changed the way people interact. And there are often less opportunities for people to interact. And then you brought up the the digital side of that experience where people go online and start to go into this wormhole and only seek out more information about the things they already know. So it is a good reminder, um, best practice for people to really just open up and, and be more welcoming. Yeah, because if the more that we actually interact with other human beings, the less fear that we have. I was really struck by the fact that you are inspired by the exuberance of hope that your students have when they come into your classroom. And obviously, you, the, the, the subject of immigration and refugees has really taken a very prominent stage in the national discourse. And I'm curious, do you feel that there's been a shift in terms of like their awareness and their approach to being an immigrant in this completely new unknown environment? Yes, um, they definitely have noticed. I mean, they've been aware of it since uh, the election, since the 2016 election and the vitriol traded by the uh, Trump when he was a candidate. And so it, it, when the election happened and the very next day when I went to school, I had students waiting for me uh, at the classroom. Students that I didn't currently have, but had had in the past, and they were all sought me out because they just wanted to talk to me and ask me what, what was going to happen. When were they going to be required to leave? And it was truly heartbreaking because I, I mean, I assured them, I was like, no, we want you here. You're welcome. You're part of our community. 
uh, and you will not have to leave because you have people here who love you and care about you and won't allow that to happen. Um, and I still have students who have fears like that, that, that one day, I mean, there's so many things that are happening that are suggesting that um, even citizenship isn't a guarantee anymore. They're very, very aware. And that sense of security and safety they had when they came has been degraded and diminished. And it's up to us as community members to ensure that they still feel safe and welcome, regardless of what's happening at a federal level, regardless of the rhetoric that's coming out of the uh, current administration, that we as a nation want them here and value them and appreciate all they have to offer our communities. You know, you made some headlines in the last year around what some of the publications were calling an act of silent protest in wearing pins when receiving your award and then handing letters to the president from your students. I'm curious if there's any follow-up to that story, because we haven't seen much in the news. You know, did you ever receive a response from the Trump administration around, you know, the outreach that you had done or the platform that you had made clear when you were in Washington? I did about a month and a half after the visit to the White House, and I handed um, the president the letters. I did receive a response uh, from 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 Trump's office. Uh, it was signed by him, but it, of course, I you never know who wrote the letter or not. But um, it was in his name, and the letter actually it talked about the appreciation for the stories, and it did mention some specific things that suggested that someone, if not Trump himself, but someone had read the letters. And then the belief that this administration has in the diversity of our communities and the strength that brings and how they want us all to be connected and working together. So that was the the letter. All surrounding receiving that letter, there were also so many policies that came out that um, don't necessarily uh, exemplify what was written within within that text. But the one thing that I can say that I came away from that with was happiness that I had actually followed through for my students and given him their their letters so they they could themselves share their stories and that someone read them. So I guess the question, Mandy, based on what you just said, is. There are people, um, whether in the administration or the person next door, that don't really understand the ins and outs of this issue. Um, You know, if there were somebody that was, you know, that was anti-immigration or leaning in that direction, you know, what are some things that you would say to them about why immigration is a good thing? I know this is a big question, but why is immigration a good thing for the future of our It's important to understand your specific community. Because sometimes we talk about these things from this 5,000 foot, you know, view. And really what we need to be doing is talking about direct communities. So for example, here in Spokane, um, we, we have a, quite a large immigrant refugee population. So we serve 77 languages, um, which, which then suggests that we have several more cultures that are, are living here in Spokane. And one of the things that people don't seem to understand about our community is that it's all intertwined and works together. We have to have immigrant and refugee communities because they also serve an economic purpose 
that I think people don't seem to understand. So here's a connection that we have in, in Spokane. We have a family, they're from Sudan. There are 10 people in this family. There's a mother and father and then several children. Um, and one of the students was in the newcomer program and is now at university and studying to be an educator. So there's one and another of the students also is studying at um, a university here and is a McNair scholar. So these are two of the kids from this family who are now going on to be productive members of our community. So that's an important piece. But another important piece is that the father is working at a plant here in Spokane who creates machinery for farmers. So that's a, and we have a lot of rural areas surrounding Spokane. So that's um, a very important part of the connectedness and the intersection of, of, of our different communities. So then the final piece of that is that this company employs a, a great deal of people, a great many people. And what they find as an organization is that they will have many, many American-born people apply for their administrative positions. But almost none, almost no American-born people will apply for the manufacturing plant, so working directly on the manufacturing floor. So they end up having about 70% of their manufacturing employees are actually our immigrant and refugee population. And so with the decrease in the number of refugees coming into our community, they now have several jobs that are being left open because American-born people will not apply for those jobs. And so now we're looking at something that is impacting every part of our community. It's impact, negatively impacting the farmers. It's negatively impacting the business. And it's also then becomes part of an economic problem for everybody in this area. I think it's really important that people actually figure out what's happening within their own community so that they can utilize stories from how it's actually impacting every single individual. Because if you can humanize it, if you can to a real story, that's what changes hearts and minds. That's the, mm -hmm. those stories. And then obviously, if they can, to create an actual human connection where they're introducing people who don't believe that this is something that we should be supporting, that immigration refugees are not something that we should support, then if you can show them how five of your neighbors are people from who are born in another nation and look at what they're bringing to your neighborhood. I think those are the really important pieces, telling stories and making those real human connections. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this, Mandy, because in Cleveland, it's interesting is we have the exact same situation where there are certain plants or third shift type situations where employers are using almost fully immigrant talent to staff those those shifts or, or those um, those jobs. And some of them are so successful that, you know, when we've looked at, you know, why are they not telling their stories? It's almost like this is the secret sauce. Like they realize this is what's going to allow their company to be successful so much so that they don't want to lose those people and that it really is the backbone of their workforce. It's kind of ironic, particularly with what's happening with the current administration and the, the rhetoric around bringing back manufacturing in this country. It's ironic that they wouldn't think about how to staff those labor-based positions and how much of a part of the pipeline this is. So we definitely see it in our community. I think it's more of a national trend than like an isolated incident in both Spokane and Cleveland. I think it's probably something that's going on nationwide that more people just aren't aware of. We've heard you say 
things like teachers need to have a voice. And we're curious if you can talk to us a little bit about that. So what does it mean or what's not being heard or activated on that should be? Teachers, so if you look at a school building, 85% of the people who are working within that building are working directly within classrooms. The people who are creating policies that are impacting those classrooms are not the ones working within the classrooms. And this is something that we see all the time, right? You have policymakers who are creating um, overarching education policy that then filters down to the district level, which then is implemented and decided upon by district administration with very little input from educators. So then what happens, then the policies uh, filter into the classroom and it becomes an issue because educators can then no longer effectively differentiate for their students because they have this policy that doesn't work within this whole idea that we have to, we can't have standardization like full board all the way across because every single class has different kinds of students who have different needs. So we need to change that. We need to make sure that educators who are working directly in the classroom know what's happening, can see the changing demographics or, or the different needs of their school within their that specific community. And so they need to have not just a voice, like it, it, because we hear teacher stories all the time. Educators, we need to not only be voicing uh, what we think about policy, but actually working on developing policy because we're the ones who know what's actually going on. And so the, the way that I think educators can do this is we have this idea that you have to have um, an impact at the federal level. But when you really look at policy, federal policy tends to be pretty broad. And then it gets a little bit more narrow at the state level where they're interpreting what the federal level wants. But really the role of the state legislature is then to hand it off to either the State Board of Education or the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction or something like that to then interpret the law and implement policy. But it's at the local level where they're taking that policy by the State Board of Education or the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction and actually figuring out how they're going to implement it within their district, where we tend to see the narrowing of the policy, which can be very constrictive for educators. It's really at the local level and the implementation of policy when we're developing our own idea of how this is going to work within our communities that educators really need to step up and voice what they believe should be happening and offer their support in creating that policy. I wish that this was happening on a regular basis, but right now it's not. We need to change the culture. And instead of having to have these, you know, huge uh, demonstrations where educators come together and, you know, strike or, or use their collective voice in that way, we need to be ensuring that educators have an actual impact right away so that we don't get to the part, the point where teachers are going out on strike. Well, just thinking about ways to make change and, and sort of have that groundswell um, that hopefully would, would force some kind of uh, national level policy to change because they're seeing it bubble up from the individual school districts. It sounds like that's, you know, it makes a lot of sense that that would be effective. So curious a little bit about just education in the future. Obviously you were very specific area of education, but you you seem to have a finger on the pulse of what students need now and, you know, how we can best support them in the future. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about 
best and worst educational trends, in your opinion? Kind of a, a general a general topic, but you know, a lot of times it goes towards technology or standardized testing or whatever it is. But what are the trends that get you most excited um, or that you would just hope would go away? <laughs> For the last, oh, I would say 20, 25 years, we've seen this really strong push towards standardization. And along with that came the standardized testing, but this just standardization in general, where we're having school districts implement curriculum and requiring their educators to follow a curriculum with fidelity, meaning they don't uh, deviate from that curriculum at all. It tends to be scripted. So they're told you have to be on this page on this day saying this exact thing at this time. Um, And then we're also seeing things like pacing guides which are dictating how many minutes you're spending on this and how many minutes you're spending on that and how quickly you have to move through things in order to get from point A to point B. And so that really has been one of the factors that has most been detrimental to education because you can't, as an educator, someone who's taught for nearly, you know, going into my 20th year now, I can guarantee you that I have never had the same class from semester to semester or year to year. Um, And by that, I mean, yes, I've taught the same subject, but I've had to teach it in a completely different way because I've never had the same grouping of students. And I have to adjust for the individual needs of my students within my classroom. And so that's been extremely detrimental. And I think one of the factors that has led to some of what we're seeing right now with the student's inability to transfer skills to the college level and or really work together because we have standardized we've left out any opportunity for collaboration and working together so that said i mean it's like a speeding train we have an entire 10 or 15 years of of educators who are coming out of educator preparation programs who are trained to work within a standardized classroom and so that's something that we're we're going to have to address for sure But all of that said, one of the things that I think has come out of this standardization movement and understanding that it is not effective in meeting individual needs of students and individual needs of communities is that we are now looking at really awesome things in, for lack of a better word, developing soft skills in our kids. I don't like the term soft skills because it's it seems kind of namby-pamby, but it's these skills about how do you communicate with people? How do you work together? Because even industry professionals are finding that kids are coming out or, or their workforce is coming out and not being able to communicate or work with one another or adapt or adjust to, to, to things as they change or get trained in new things because they're like one, one road and we have to do it this way. And hey, tell me what I'm supposed to do for this so that I can regurgitate and do whatever it is you want me to do. We've seen it at the professional level with people that have interviewed here. It's very much so the carrot or the stick kind of mentality, like tell me what I need to do to meet your expectations, but very little divergent thinking. So it's it, it does make it challenging. It does make it challenging for the workforce as well as students. Yeah. So, but we're seeing a shift towards that now. Um, be, and I think a lot of that is because of business support for that kind of instruction. So that's been nice to see that we're having more project-based learning. We're having more time for social-emotional learning. We're having more time to for building communities within our classrooms so that kids can learn more effectively. Um, and I'm, I'm also hopeful that this shift 
away from standardization will will help us to because right now we have a lot of breadth of learning. So if you take a chemistry class, you're going to learn a little bit about every aspect of chemistry, which is not necessarily where we should be. We need to have more like depth of learning to where kids choose something and really learn a lot about it. Like there's a teacher in Indiana who was the 2018 teacher of the year there who uses physics to, who uses set building for the theater department to teach physics. And so kids are getting really in-depth knowledge of physics instead of just this overview that they then get tested on. They're really utilizing those skills in a very real-world way. And so I think that that's really great. Really, that's the key, is we, we need to have more depth of knowledge and more ability to apply knowledge to real-world situations and work together and communicate with one another. So what do you think education will look like in the future for children? Oh, gosh. Um, I have my hopes. (laughs) So I really believe in the promise of public education and that it is the key to equity. Uh, And I also believe that because we, we often see this push towards school choice and all of that stuff. But I believe that you should never have to travel to go to a school that meets your needs and gives you a quality and appropriate education. And so my hope is that we're going to move towards this idea that schools are the centers of our communities. So not only are they going to be a place of learning, but they're also going to be a place for families and a place where we're able to connect our neighborhoods and our communities with services and opportunities outside of the school. So it kind of becomes like this center where everybody goes to learn and connect and be a connected, strong community. So that's my hope. My hope is that schools become central to their neighborhoods and to their communities and really serve the direct community within which they reside. Well, that sounds like a great future, and we'll certainly hope for it, and hopefully there are things that we as citizens can do to push for that as well. Mandy, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a really great conversation, and we wish you nothing but success in your efforts this year as Teacher of the Year and beyond. So thank you again. Thank you so much, you guys. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history So obviously Mandy's doing a lot of things different in the classroom and that was why she was recognized and I think there's a lot of conversation about what comes next. You know, living in such a fast-paced world, things are always changing. I think there's a lot of conversations about what happens with technology, but that's not the only thing that is kind of ranking on the list of top trends in education. And Allie, I know you've been doing some research as to what people are talking about, the things that we need to be paying attention to in education in the next year and years to come. What are some of the things that you've learned in your research? So the first and I think most important arguably thing that people in education are talking about is the importance of personalized learning and creating education that is tailored to the individual student. The introduction of technology can really help with that. Um, I know my brother and sister's high school gives them Chromebooks. Um, which allows them to do homework online, collaborate with others more from home, look up certain things, complete 
lessons online at home so that they can go into school with a better understanding of the topics. So they can spend their time that they're in the classroom learning more and understanding more. Interesting. So, you know, what's happening at home, you know, it's sort of like the flip of what I experienced when I was in elementary school where, you know, you would go home and that was where the solo-based learning was happening. Um, but now it seems like even that's a social space and people are, you know, and it sounds like, and your your brother and sister are younger right? and probably this didn't just start for them. Elementary schools are introducing technology like Chromebooks into the classroom. Um, so it seems like even that's a social space, a collaborative space now. Um, another thing in the future, like 20 years, um, the introduction of all these new technologies will sort of take away, like in math, for example, um, the whole like process of it and data collection will be done strictly through technology and through computers. And so what we'll be left with is the like analysis and the theory of it with our brains so that they're, so in like 20 years, the classroom, math classroom will be kids talking about math and the way that you can implement math in your life. So it's all focused more on theory and collaboration rather than the algorithms, mm-hmm. maybe. And the application of it, why yeah. it matters. Exactly. Interesting. Well, it follows that idea of blended learning. So being able to apply the curriculum to real life experiences. And I think that what that means is that all of my high school math teachers are wrong that told <laughs> me that I needed to know how to do math without a calculator, right? Because this <laughs> yeah. is what you're talking about is that, you know, in the future, you know, and we're not talking about like far in the future, you're talking about 20 years, which could fly by like that. So, you know, in the future, you're not going to need to really be able to do that long form math. What you're going to be asked to do is apply it. So what else? What else are you seeing in your research? Having holograms, hologram professor in live time. So he'll be in a, a classroom in America and then his hologram will be projected to people taking the class online in another country. And this sort of allows the professor who's being presented as a hologram to interact with the students that he can't interact with in a face-to-face context, but in um, a cloud-based context. So he can, the one really cool thing that technology will allow for is digital mentoring. Mentoring is a huge and like higher education. Technology will introduce um, digital mentoring in elementary schools, middle schools, where it's like it could be really, really important. The benefits of mentoring are so recognized at this point that finding a way to scale it um, and and make it accessible to people, you know, no matter where they live, that that sounds like it could be um, really beneficial and kind of buck the trend. I think, you know, when a lot of people think about technology in the classroom, they think about it you know, depersonalizing the experience. But what you're talking about with mentoring is actually creating a way to make it highly personal and eliminate the barriers that may exist from making it personal. Um, and so bridging those, in those gaps and making those connections despite where people live, where they grow up. One of the other, like, really important aspects of education is the idea of emphasizing the importance of what you're learning. Because like exactly what you were just talking about, it's it's a lot of times very removed. Like people learn for the test instead of learn to master the information. So what technology and mentoring and uh, flipped classrooms will allow people to do is sort of connect with the material more. And mentoring especially will help people sort of get a handle on why what they're learning is important and how it's interesting and how it applies 
not only to what they're doing right now and what they're testing on and what they're experiencing in the classroom, but also where it will take them in 20 years or why it's important to know now for your future. Absolutely. In doing my own research for this episode, one of the things I came across um, was that you know the, the purpose of the classroom is changing and what can be done there. And so what it sounds like you're starting to talk about is this idea of using these classrooms to actually solve complex problems um, and using it as a proving ground almost instead of a place where um, you may not be able to apply that information. So rather than just using it as a place to master tools, revisiting this idea of the classroom as a place for divergent thought. One of the things that I'm struck by, as you know, Hallie alluded to earlier, in this very fast-paced world that we're in and everything is constantly changing and one has to keep up with the technology to stay relevant and stay viable in the workforce. And so there is that proverbial digital divide. And what's beginning to happen, too, is in schools that may be in lower-income neighborhoods where those students don't have the same resources that other students in other districts may have. And so that lack of digital knowledge is actually becoming younger and younger, where you're falling behind even sooner. Um, you know, I was reading an anecdote about a student who lived in poverty and went to a school in Harlem. And so she didn't have access to a lot of these digital resources and is actually writing out a full assignment on her mother's phone and you know so it's it's really sad when you hear these stories about these students who want to learn but don't have the access to the technology that some of these other school districts are having so I think that's one of the challenges of some of these growing issues within these school districts that don't have the funding for educational advancement is making sure that this technology is available where it's you know and the thing is is at the end of the day it's not really costing a lot for these for this technology to be implemented and it it changes the ability and the opportunities for these students to make sure that they are succeeding as they progress through their school system and through their education and being able to go on to college and have that same advantage to succeed in their in their education the digital divide is quickly quickly expanding especially with how much new technology is made available on a daily basis um, there's a, a nonprofit organization called the education superhighway that is working to actually hopefully eradicate it by 2020 is their goal. Um, and I'm trying to think. In They had a report in 2017 that it was 6.5 million students. They are, they're saying left to be connected to the internet. So obviously, you know, digital inequality and di the digital divide is, is very apparent and it's very like harmful as you were saying. Well, it's kind of interesting because I know, Allie, you were looking into studies about, like, what is the actual effect of not having access to technology at the educational level, and we're talking about primary school. Some of the research you were coming across that you shared with us, it's kind of like it's telling two tales, right? You know, some of it is saying, you know, and, and particularly in the area of math, there are a lot of studies that point to the fact that if you aren't exposed to some type of computing power early in your life, that you know, uh, you know, later in life, they're now able to show that there is a difference in the way that you're able to perform in mathematics. It's not conclusive. The data at this point is not conclusive. And there are studies that say the inverse, which is, which is it makes no difference at all. 
you know, and so I don't think that technology obviously is a big category. I don't think you can say like it benefits you or it doesn't, but I think some of the things you were talking about before in how technology is employed in the classroom, what you're doing to apply it, whether it's for mentoring programs or virtual learning or some type of blended option, like that's that's the, the question, right? Like what is it that makes the difference and actually equalizes the playing ground so that by the time these students get to college, they're starting from the same place and not coming in with a deficiency. And I, d I don't know that we know that yet, but I know that there are a lot of um, schools, both at the, the primary, primary and secondary level and even postgraduate level, that are trying to figure that out. You know, right here in Cleveland, um, I know Case Western Reserve University is experimenting with uses of technology and looking at options for blended learning or fully online degree programs. There's a lot of work happening there to do it in the right way. So not just using technology for technology's sake, but applying the best that technology has to bring so that the things that are important about the classroom experience aren't getting lost when you migrate to a fully digital environment. That's a great point, is especially considering the digital divide and how much our classroom and how much our technology is changing separately and together, that you really have to be thoughtful of how you're implementing technology because more technology isn't always better. Just because we're living in a more digital world doesn't mean it's the most helpful thing that you can have. So I think it's, it's really important to have a conversation about how you're teaching and training future teachers to use and utilize all these new technologies and be thoughtful of what might come next. And I wonder if the solution is that technology is used to manage and activate curiosity because that can be the most powerful tool for a child to be engaged and want to learn. That's one thing that's nice about the idea of online learning is that the student can pause at any moment and they can pick up when they want to and at their ideal moment when they're engaged. We all know this just from working. You know, there's certain times of the day when you're more engaged and you're able to get more work done versus other times. So this allows that for the student. And then if we apply that to learning with their hands, so having digital and analog learning with hands, they will be able to apply that in different ways. And then the last thing is thinking about it from multidisciplinary methods. So bringing different vantage points together so that they can apply that learning in different ways, I think is really important. I know when I was in college back in the day, um, I a lot of my classes used a program called Moodle, which I was using since middle school, but now it's becoming sort of obsolete because of Google Classroom and other things. But Moodle is like you have your professor can upload articles, videos. You can take tests online, which I think is really helpful. She would have the tests open for a week, so we would be able to study and then take the test on the weekend when we felt we were more prepared versus taking it the standard way, which is just in the classroom with her breathing down your neck, getting test anxiety. So I think the ability to sort of really be at your most engaged and your most effective um, is a really, really helpful aspect of technology in the classroom. So obviously that goes back to this trend of personalized learning and this idea that in order for the education to mean something, you have to kind of meet students where they're at and allow them to take that information and do something 
extraordinary with it. I think it sort of goes back to when you think about all of these inventors back in olden times and them working in a lab and you hear stories about them working late at night and developing their ideas. It's really, you know, everybody has a different sort of creative cycle and, you know, they have a different way of working that allows them to take information and make something with it. What it sounds like to me is that these trends are, yes, in better serving students, but also, you know, creating better outcomes, you know, and not just for the, the person, but but for society, not to be too grandiose about it, but this idea that, you know, we're going to get better ideas out of people if we find a way to, to make the information mean something to them. And that, that also requires us to kind of uh, take the approach that I know Eric talks about all the time, you know, being our sort of chief data person um, and, and understanding behavior. But it's, it's about, you know, understanding, you know, personal behaviors and what's going to allow people to actually take information and, and do something with it. Yeah, I completely agree. Allie, what else are you seeing as far as trends in education? The current education system is focused not so much on mastery-based learning, but getting you through it. So like if you're in Algebra 1 and you get a C in the class, which is base level, you know 70% of the information, and then you are still advancing into Algebra 2, even though you don't know 30% of the information. So the concept of Focusing more on mastery-based learning is is allowing the student to take their time in, in really perfecting all of the theories and all of the aspects of the, the concepts that they need to move on. So like if you don't know Algebra 1, you can't move on to calculus and be successful. So it's the idea that you really have a good, masterful grasp on your craft. One example I read when I was researching it was artisan crafts who have their masters and apprentices. So an apprenticeship, you take 10 years or however long and and perfect your craft and then you you move on to being a master and have your own apprentices. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking about when you were going through and describing that example is the way that things work when you talk about mastery when it comes to a specific skill the way that they work in the real world is not how they currently work in the educational space. So I am curious to see if we move towards this culture of mastery, like how is that going to affect somebody who's a C student right now? You know, are they going to be left behind or are they going to move on? I was actually just traveling. I was in Amsterdam and I, you know, was talking to the boyfriend of a relative of mine who is a teacher in English at the high school level. And he was saying that in their country, there's actually sort of like this advising role that they play in helping students, you know, kind of figure out which track they're going to go into. And there is a lot of like pushback by parents that want their kids to go into one track versus another. So, you know, no different from America where we have these helicopter parents. Um, but what he was saying is that it's actually a really important role that a teacher plays in that in that country because they don't want to see you know, for example, somebody go on to a track that's going to allow them to be a doctor that was getting, you know, a C grade in biology in high school. If they don't have the skills to build on, 
they don't want to, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, his point was that person could be performing open heart surgery on you one day. You want to make sure that they're getting the foundational learning at the high school level that's going to allow them to then go down to the collegiate level, the medical school level, and therefore and then on. You know, that was a, like a kind of anxiety producing when I was having this conversation with him because I was like, oh my gosh, I think about what I was like in high school. Um, and the reasons I was that way. And, you know, I was a good student. Um, you know, I took a lot of AP classes, but I often say to Eric, you know, nobody when I was that age, you know, encouraged me to go into science or math. And now as an adult, I have an interest in the sciences. And I actually probably would have been stronger in it had I had, you know, teachers that actually like met me where I was at. And it's not a, it's not a knock on my teacher. So if any of you are listening, I don't want you to feel offended, but, but it just kind of was like, oh, you know, you're not strong here. You're sort of a language arts history person and, and you're going to do better over there. And so why don't you like spend your time doing this? Whereas, you know, maybe I would have been stronger in it. So much of what I was hearing was that the decision is made in high school about what the rest of your life is going to be like. And and I think from what you're saying, Allie, that's kind of where we're going is that, you know, there's going to be sort of this um, this feeling that like you you can't master at a certain level. You will not move forward potentially. Um, and certainly that's what standardized tests are meant to kind of uh, affect as well. That's what I really like about the idea of uh, the apprentice and the master is that it's a very organic evolution and it is personalized because you could remain at that apprentice level as long as you want but you're still in the field that you have interest in but you're not going to be put in a position where you could affect someone's life in a negative way for example if you're a doctor you know you might just be in a different position within the medical field going back to a point you made earlier Hallie I think what that means for education if we move to that path is that there would be this more organic evolution where you might not see graduations with big classes. It's individuals moving forward at their own pace, getting those job placements earlier. And some those students that we hear about all the time that go to college at 16, well, they, they might go straight into the workforce and be able to apply those in a different way. So the bigger question becomes, do they need college? Because if they're then having the real life experience and having that apprenticeship, learning from those that have been leading in the industry for years, do they need that? Uh, college experience or do they need do they need um, and obviously you know there's a lot of things to gain out of a, coll- a collegiate experience outside at the undergraduate level outside of you know the educational piece of it um, in the way that it prepares you for a job but you know do they need you know taking that aside for a moment do they need a full degree program you know and I think that that's there's a lot of conversation right now at the collegiate level about what do students actually need to succeed in the workforce and what will they be willing to pay for in the future? And still, though, with the idea of the apprentice and the master, you do have your certifications along the way. So there will be some place for this quote unquote diploma that still happens. But we're talking about that the talent pipeline that leads someone into this path so that they can become the, the apprentice or the master. But then I think what's really important is that continual education so that we're continually edu- educating the workforce and letting them hone their craft and become better at that and reaching that point of mastery. So maybe it's just redefining the words that we use and just so that we can start to adopt a new approach. I'm not sure, but I do like that concept. The one thing that I'm worried that we're going to lose if we move towards Mm -hmm. the system of mastery in a specific skilled area or craft or let's call it track, whatever it ends up being is you know, I find that some of my most divergent thoughts come from this mashup of um, 
you know, sort of things that are outside of my comfort zone and things that are like really in my sort of area of expertise. And I think that that's what degree programs do a really good job of is forcing you to do things like take general education credits or, you know, have a minor or whatever it is so that you can, you know, be a little less tunnel vision about your education and think about it from different vantage points. And so I wonder if, you know, we go towards the system of mastery where people become so singular in what it is they think they need to get out of their education, if they're going to lose that ability to, whether they're in a creative field or not, think creatively about problems. Um, and so that to me is something I hope doesn't go away, at least. So you still need the, the stimulus of the multidisciplinary forces coming into play. They need to work together so that you are challenged to think differently and hopefully you go down that path of them becoming your mentor and in a way that's your quote-unquote minor. I went to a liberal arts college and I that it requires you to take a certain number of gen general education classes and I agree that it, it's beneficial because you sort of put yourself like I was a communication major so I took mostly media communication classes but I also had to take like science and math and fine arts, humanities, reading, writing, all that kind of stuff to give you a fully rounded point of view and, and your education. And I think it's it's beneficial to have more than one way of going about looking at your craft. And I think a mastery and apprenticeship approach to your education is definitely it's it's nice but it's it i think you need to modify it to allow diverse thinking because in addition to in addition to your growth the world is growing and and you need to grow with it and take in multiple point of views because one craft is influenced by all the other crafts which is where thinking differently sort of comes to play. Now, here's the other piece of this conversation. You know, we've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, there are a lot of trades that are suffering in terms of new people coming into the trades. So that's things like plumbing, you know, labor-based jobs, things of that nature, and, you know, having people go, you know, to trade schools. You know, I kind of wonder and, you know, would love thoughts from any of you listening if you work in these areas about, you know, what does this mean? Is there a need for a well-rounded curriculum even within those schools, particularly as technology around the trades is changing quite a bit? Um, so we'd love to hear from you. But I think that, um, you know, probably some component of this does apply in most jobs, not all, but most. Um, so, you know, it, it sounds like we're, we're back to kind of like thinking about these trends and whether it's personalization or some of the other things that you're seeing, um, it sounds like it's going to permeate pretty much every every part of our educational system from the ground up. One thing that I keep going back to, Ali, is the, the comment you've made that technology has allowed several iterations of education, you know, be it in smaller classrooms, be it students having their, you know, their day-to-day -day lessons from home, um, depending on what, you know, even, you know, below college, it could even be elementary or middle school or high school. And something that I keep thinking about, I think such an important aspect of the educational experience is socialization and being uh, in, a, in a classroom 
with others and quite frankly having a bit of that healthy competition and you know when i hear things such as you know uh the flexibility to the extreme of uh, you know taking a test when you feel more ready i question is that almost becoming too soft you know because once uh, somebody is educated and they are placed into the real world unfortunately we don't have we don't live in a world where uh, it's, it's that's as accommodating and so are we actually creating a detriment to that student in the pursuit of making their education more palatable are we actually creating a deficit in terms of their socialization and their ability to work within challenges or work within pressure and deadlines that, that's one thing that I feel could be harmful and I, I think it, it leads to lends itself to the importance of the socialization of the traditional classroom and the traditional university. I worry that by doing things like hyper-personalizing um, education, it's like we're teaching kids that the world is like this very safe, very personalized place. When here's the reality, when you get out into the real world, these kids are going to have to be aware. There is a certain amount of personal accountability um, that, you know, Brian, I don't disagree with you. You know, we can personalize down to a certain place, but I do think that at the end of the day, you have to be able to own some of your differences and know how to operate within a system because as much as we might try to personalize in the workplace, it's, it's particularly if you work for a large, a very large organization, you are going to have to figure out how to work within the system. That's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think it's the flip of what we've been talking about with trends, which is it's not necessarily a problem that technology can fix. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's proof point to the fact that teachers still have a very, very important role in the classroom, not only to teach, but to create a safe learning environment where children learn, you know, especially at the pre-primary level and then at the primary level, how to interact with each other, you know, and to be like good kind of citizens of the world. And so, you know, Brian, I totally agree that there's so much learning that happens in the classroom around the material um, that, you know, again, it's not it's not something that technology is going to solve for us. We still have to, you know, kind exactly. of be human beings <laughs> to be human beings and be prepared to be adult human beings you know it's almost the purell effect you know they you they say you use too much purell your body loses those good germs it's almost like in this it's, we're becoming so sanitary with you know siphoning schools and everybody doing it separate so that they can do it in their own pace it it almost you lose that unity you're almost building too great of immunity to these outside factors um, that are important to existing as a thriving professional in the working world. One of the best things about education, in my opinion, is in addition to learning cool things, is the ability to learn how to handle conflict and handle conflict well. And I think that's something that's going to continue on into the future of education, hopefully, will be the idea and the ability and the opportunity to learn how to interact with other human beings and be a good person and handle challenges, whether it be time-based, comfort-based, or conflict-based. Precisely. It's using knowing how to use it as an enhancement, not a replacement. I also think that this idea of technology supporting a, the hyper-personalization of the educational experience for people leads us into a place where everyone is working as separate terminals when we really want to react and interact as one system. And going back to Brian's point about 
navigating conflict. You can't do that if you don't have your friends. If you're on your own island, again, using the computer as an example here, they don't have any support. So, you know, having that life experience with someone else allows you to interact and learn. You gain that partnership, friendship, support that you need. So I think if we aim to have this system where we can all work together, we can all learn from each other, different disciplines for managing and activating curiosity, we'll get to a better place. Well, and here's the other thing. So, you know, I don't know how you guys felt when you got to college. We you know we're in a room of four people that all attended college. Um, but I will say that I felt like I got more of that personalization, even though it wasn't a hyper-personalized educational experience when I got to college, because I got to choose. I got to choose what I want to study. I got to choose where I wanted to live. I got to choose the school. You know, I was fortunate to get into my first choice school. I got to choose, you know, pretty much everything about my collegiate experience. You choose your courses. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, but you're still within a system. You still have to work within a system. You know, there was still a lot of value in working within sort of like an established system and learning how to deal with people that, you know, were challenging or, or topics that were challenging um, and working through it. Um, so to me, you know, I, I feel that there was still a lot of value in going through traditional education. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation now about what is the future of college and what, you know, I, my, my dad sometimes makes jokes, you know, we put away for our kids college education and he's like, well, you know, if they, if they still go to college or they don't like form a corporation in your garage, I, I, my, my retort to that is, you know, I really do hope that they go to college. There is so much value to be gained from being exposed to things that might not all be this singular view on what you think you're interested in. Because, you know, as we all know, as you go through your career, as you work a little bit out in the working world, you know, your interests may change or the reasons why you're interested in the things that you used to be interested in you know, it may be a flip, you know, there might be a rotation there. And sometimes having more of a foundation, great colleges and universities think through this, all the things they want you to be exposed to so that you can be successful and innovative in your field. And sometimes you don't know why you're being exposed to those things at the time, but they come back later. Um, so I think that there's a lot of value in going to, you know, as Ali mentioned, whether it's a liberal arts school or something that's a full degree program, or even if it's an online degree program, something with some blended learning or a cohort or a way to like interact with peers, you know, just having the ability to go through a full program rather than just picking and choosing. To me, there's, there's just so much I think you would miss out on. One of the things that formal education offers, whether it's public or private, universities is that it gives you access, access to thought leaders, access to people that have honed the craft over years of experience. For example, I went to Michigan State and had the opportunity to have a professor who worked with Leo Burnett himself. This professor was a copywriter and he told us stories about Leo Burnett in the office and some of the most amazing experiences he had as he developed some of the biggest brands in the world. And I wouldn't have had that experience had I took his class. You know, I could have chosen a different class and learned something else, but I had that opportunity to work with him. I had that access. But you can gain that access at any educational institution. They're just different levels. So you need to understand who you want to learn from and, and seek them out.
bigger boat. Earlier, we spoke a lot about the digital divide and making sure that that divide is closed so that students and children going through the system have those opportunities and a more equal playing field. So this episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to the state of Indiana. Through this program called Upstart, students that are not even yet in kindergarten are given access to technology that allows them to have instructional hours that cover reading, math, science, through such lessons, activities, books, songs. And what this is showing is that just through 30 minutes a day, five days a week, before entering kindergarten, their success rates are exponentially higher. And what's great about this program is that families that don't have the access, as we talked earlier, to internet or computers, um, they're actually provided with a Chromebook and, and satellite internet. So that that playing field, that divide that we spoke to early, earlier is is closing. So it allows them to be partnered with um, an actual personal care representative who monitors each children's pro- each child's progress, and they have access to live help through phone or email up to six days a week. So, the attention that and the and the importance that they're placing on four-year-old children as be- right before they go into kindergarten is truly setting the stage for success. So, my bigger boat goes to State Senator Jean leasing and the state of Indiana for their program called Upstart. My bigger boat, of course, has to go out to Harmony Wu because she did a really great job of giving me a history of television and fostered my love for two genres that are still near and dear to my heart, horror and melodrama. So if you're out there, Harmony Wu, this one's for you. This episode, My Bigger Boat goes out to Professor Dina Katabi, who is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. She recently spoke at the MTech conference uh, put on by the MIT Technology Review. I had the privilege to attend that conference. And during her session, she spoke about some of her work. In her lab at MIT, she focuses on wireless network and mobile computing. And the topic of her session was about some of these startups that she's been leading with her students, one of which is called Emerald. And its, and its focus is on invisibles instead of wearable technology. So Emerald is a platform that features no contact sensors, and it's a cloud-based machine learning analytics platform. So imagine that this was installed into your home. It actually turns your home into a whole system that can monitor the activity. So the example she used, patients that might have Alzheimer's or patients that have diabetes, and these sensors are able to track their movements, know exactly how they're moving through the space, and monitor all their vitals and report that back to doctors. As we know, the healthcare industry is overwhelmed with work as the baby boomer generation gets older. So this type of technology will enable them to monitor more patients in a a way that they can have that focus on each patient while still providing excellent care. So my shout out is to Dina Katabi. This episode, My Bigger Boat goes to my educational hero, my mother, Suzanne Healy, who is currently completing her doctorate in education with a specialization in curriculum and instruction. And she is the director of online and hybrid learning at Case Western Reserve University's Weatherhead School of Management. 
This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at the People's University, Cleveland Public Library. CPL is the best urban library system in the country, providing access to the worldwide information that people and organizations need in a timely, convenient, and equitable manner. Learn more at cpl.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow, on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at sharkandminnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.